All right, we are live, ladies and gentlemen. So constant listeners of the show should know by now my interest in future technology, the coming fourth industrial revolution, the impacts these developments might have on society, and even our most inconsistent viewers should know our interest in the role of government and international organizations in trying to control society. We have a number of stories we're going to discuss today that relate to these topics. Also, later in the show, we are going to be joined by Michael Ashley. He is the author of the new book, Neural Mind, Triumphing Over Technological Tyranny. He's going to be joining us to talk about the potential future we seem to be headed towards. What does liberty look like in a world of AI, data collection, social credit scores, self-driving cars, CBDCs, and other developing technologies? We're going to be talking about all this and more on episode 416 of the In The Tank podcast. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. As always, I am your host, Donald Kendall. Joining me today, I've got Jim Lakely, VP of the Heartland Institute. How are you doing today, good sir? I'm doing just great. Yeah, you know, uh, I almost wore a hoodie today because, you know, apparently wearing hoodies and shorts and sneakers is uh, now acceptable dress code in the United States Senate. But uh, I just really couldn't bring myself to dishonor the show. So I just went with kind of casual and not a bad looking shirt, I suppose, but there will be no hoodies here until maybe next week to make another joke about it. Yeah, I was going to show up just wearing a bathrobe, but uh, I don't know. I'll save that for when I have to testify in front of Congress. Also joining us, we have Chris Talgo, editorial director here at the Heartland Institute. How are you doing today, good sir? Well, I have a question for Jim because he sets all of our office rules and policies. Yeah. Since you can now wear basketball shorts and T-shirts to the Senate, can I come in and wear my PJs and just whatever I feel like? It's a good question. No, you do not. Hmm. <laughs> Colored right. shirts are preferred. You know, it actually reminds That's me. It's comfort even... discrimination, Jim. The it, Heartland Institute has a more strict dress code than Congress. <laughs> In the United States Senate, that's true. Yeah, it actually reminds me. I gave a, uh, a talk on climate change at a high school once, uh, a couple times actually. And, and you arrive at the high school and I was actually flabbergasted that a good quarter of the kids were walking around in literally their pajamas and slippers um, all mm -hmm. day in the school. I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I'm old. You guys all know how old I am, super old. Uh, but when I was, when I was a kid, when I, when I was first in school, you, you know, you could wear jeans. Um, but you know, there was a, at least some sort of a dress code. I mean, kids walking around, walking around schools in literally their pajamas, I just think is absolutely ridiculous. And to have, you know, John Fetterman, being able to walk around in the in, on the Senate floor in his in his hoodie and shorts and and ratty sneakers. I mean, it's just it's absurd, and it, and it shows. I mean, if he doesn't want to be a senator, if he doesn't want to dress in a suit, it, 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 even though it's an ill-fitting one, the one he had on, it looked like it was <laughs> it was like seven sizes too big, even for a guy who's as big as Frankenstein and Lurch put together. But you know, if you don't want to comport yourself as a United States Senator should and show the respect to the institution and to your constituents and to the entire country, 
that maybe you shouldn't uh, run for Senate in the first place. I don't know. I don't know why I'm so hung up Jim, on it, but it's Jim, just kind of la- a nuts. When was the last time you went to like a Walmart? <laughs> uh, dress code there. <laughs> oh. uh, well, I, mean, I don't think, I don't think they allow you. I don't think they allow you in the store if you're wearing a shirt. <laughs> That's true. Uh, all right, audio only listeners uh, that are catching the show probably on a Friday or later, do a couple of things for us. One, why don't you leave a review for us on iTunes? It'd be greatly appreciated. Also, you could uh, you know join us a day earlier at Thursdays at noon Central Time, where we are live streaming on Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and rumble and you can join the conversation through your comments and questions in the chat maybe we'll show your comment on the screen maybe we'll address your questions on the fly we also have that super chat functionality enabled if you want to guarantee your comment or question is read on the air or just hitting that like button sharing this content subscribing if you haven't already or leaving a comment on the video all helps this channel by breaking through those big tech algorithms that prevent content like this from being shown to more people okay so we actually have our guest coming in right now we have michael ashley here he is the author of the book neuromind triumphing over technological tyranny michael thank you for joining us thank you for having me and i do want to say i'm the i'm the co-author so co-author you know what i wrote this together the only thing better than the co-author is the lead contributor and i know that firsthand so that's that's totally fine by me all right, excellent. Joining the show, uh, we got a whole bunch of stuff that I want to talk to. I want to talk to you about your book and everything. But before we get into that, um, you know, I like I kind of said at the beginning of this this uh, this podcast, I'm a big fan of you know future technology and all of that. I'm very interested in all of this. You know, when I was working on the book Dark Future, I was immersed in all these topics from artificial intelligence, automation, bioengineering brain implants you know it i know a little bit about it and uh it might seem a little counterintuitive despite the context in which i did that research that i'm still generally optimistic about technological advancements and now having said that i definitely don't consider myself an early adopter of new technology i'm always a generation behind when it comes to phones or video game systems i'm not eager to trust my life to the first generation of self-driving cars and i'm not going to be the first person to buy tickets to uh, mars on elon musk's rocket ship so when i saw an article yesterday on the top of drudge titled elon musk Neuralink, looking for people to trial its brain computer chip my mind immediately goes to hard pass, but maybe I'm just in the minority here. Uh, Michael, are you going to be lining up for for Elon Musk's uh, trial here for a brain implant? I already got it this morning. I'm- <laughs> <laughs> That's why you're slightly late to the podcast. Yeah, I mean, I thought we we're all doing that now, right? Yeah. Uh, well, I think anyone uh, who is not only creating Neuralink, who not only is a World Economic Forum global young leader. Uh, whose grandfather was the head of the Canadian uh, Technocratic Party, who has said he wants to create an all-in-one app just like WeChat. I mean, why shouldn't we trust him to put a, an implant in our brains? Yeah, it's it's a very good question. I know that Chris, he didn't even he was a he was a late adopter to the cell phone, so I can't imagine <laughs> that you're going to be first in line for this brain implant technology. Well, Donnie, I don't think so, because I did a little bit of research on this yesterday, and they were doing lots of experiments on them with monkeys, and many of the monkeys died. So I don't know how the FDA gave him approval for this, considering the fact that it could actually kill its user. 
Well, uh, I'm just I, I'm kind of shocked actually. You gotta you gotta break a couple of eggs to make an omelet, right, Jim? I mean, come on, you're you're gonna be first in line. I know you. You're 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 the guy that's hip and needs to be in with the in crowd, so you're gonna be the first one to get this. Actually, the first in line should be John Fetterman. Uh, <laughs> it certainly would, it would probably boost his brain capacity, considering he's still not fully recovered from a stroke that he had. But uh, well, I'm actually curious, and maybe Andy can bring the story up here. Uh, you know, what is this? neural chips supposed to actually do uh, uh yeah what, what is the benefit of it does it give you super intelligence you know or does no, it allow you to it's, um, supposed, your... it's supposed to allow you to control a keyboard or a device through your thoughts so for people with uh, paralysis or als or some of those other ailments uh who can't actually you know like use their their limbs to you know do things it supposedly is going to allow them so i mean i donny i to be honest after i read you know some stories on this yesterday and i was not very impressed at you know where it's at yet uh i kind of was thinking it was going to be more in line with it could like you know you could like download <laughs> programs into your brain and all that kind of stuff but yes. apparently apparently you know that's all in the matrix so yeah you know, it would be cool if i could just download like and become like a jujitsu master or something right. like that but, I, you know. I i know how to fly in a helicopter now right exactly yeah yeah, yeah i mean the, these I, i've done a lot of looking into these neurochip type things and most of them, while they have these kind of far off, like in the future, they'll be able to do X, Y, and Z. All of these kind of first generation, first round of all of this has like a lot of kind of medical ailments uh, kind of in mind when, the, when the, you know, they're trying to, you know, kind of get this to be used by the public. So Chris mentioned, you know, this round here, the, this particular story is talking about, you know, people with ALS and paralysis and spinal cord injuries and uh, basically enable them to manipulate a cursor or a smartphone just with their thoughts and you know you could just imagine the practical applications of that um and, and there's there's a couple of other things out there one that has to do with like regulating seizures and people that have conditions with seizures and regulating other neural activity in your mind and all of that but you know i i think that we aren't that far off uh from technology i mean they've already been talks about stuff uh, with this sort of technology that would like disable or enable certain parts of your brain to enhance performance in certain tasks. I read a story several months ago about a helmet that like the army was experimenting with that uh, basically uh, uh, reduced the signal in the in the person wearing the helmet's brain so that they would be singularly focused on a on a particular objective like shooting a target or something that like that. They wouldn't get distracted. That's uh, an episode of Black Mirror. Yeah, That's literally yeah. an episode of Black Mirror. Well, Black, you know, yesterday's uh, fiction is today's realities. Neural data collection like we've never seen before. Direct uh, knowledge transfers was something that I had seen. Ray Kurzweil, in one of his books, talked about a kind of neural link device that would be able to feed artificial signals to your neurons in your brain that would replace the actual signals coming from you know your eyes or nose and and you know uh, arms touch and all of that stuff to be able to create to immerse yourself in like a vr world where you can see and run and smell and taste and hear all of this artificial environments all while laying in your bed not actually having to move or wear a headset or anything like that so while this first step you know, it's like, oh, great. We could help people with paralysis. I don't think it's a very I don't think it's a very long horizon before we start seeing some of the crazier stuff that, Chris, you were kind of wondering about. Well, but, uh, Michael, uh, any other thoughts on the yeah, prospects I, of Neuralink? 
I have two thoughts. One, um, if you go back to, the, uh, to a book by Ernest Hemingway, The Sun Also Rises, the guy says, how did you go broke? And he said, gradually and all at once. By the way, that's the line they use in Schwab's book, too, about the Great Reset. You know, how did this happen? Um, so right now, we're not hearing a whole lot of things. It's kind of like the metaverse. It's, it's, uh, it's kind of waiting in the wings, right? We forget about it. Same with artificial intelligence. I wrote a, wrote a book about AI in 2019, and then nothing really happened. And then boom, 2023, that's the year where all this stuff comes online. So I think we're going to see the same thing happen with Neuralink. It's not going to look like it's advancing very far. And then boom, all of a sudden it's going to be ubiquitous. But I think it answers a deeper question, which is if people have wondered why it is that you will own nothing and, and be happy, you just talked about basically forcing people's, uh, using a brute force, force attack on people's cognitive abilities. That's what Neuralink is going to do. Mm -hmm. um, among other things, by the way, it will prevent people from even having this discussion in the future should all of us get this this chip. But more importantly to what I was saying a moment ago, um, if you can trick people's brains into thinking whatever you want, they could be eating the bugs and they could think it's lobster or escargot, or you could get them to think whatever you want if you control their minds. So I think this is a big part of the agenda. Yeah, I, I think of another Matrix reference where the guy is saying, you know, I know that this steak and how juicy and red it is or whatever is just brain signals and just code or whatever. But he takes a bite. Ignorance is bliss. <laughs> yeah, so I definitely uh, see the pop culture references to all of that. So, Michael, I very much enjoyed your book. I cruised through it. I think I finished it in just a couple of days of reading. Uh, I, I I don't want to go through every chapter uh, in it because, you know, I want to leave some of the, the meat to the people that are going to buy the book and everything. But there are definitely a couple of things that I want to pick your brain about. So one of the first stories, actually, before I get into it, why don't you just do like a little bit of an elevator pitch for your book before I ask you some specific questions? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the book is meant to help people to understand what is going on when it comes to techno-fascism. And so the quick definition I have is it's an unholy marriage between big government and big business. In our case, it's really big tech often, oftentimes, but that doesn't mean there aren't other businesses involved, but primarily it's big tech. And so the danger that we are facing right now is this giant collusion um, among these entities. And we're really talking about power. And so for the first time in history, we have tremendous power, tremendous control over people's lives. I mean, we've been just talking about it a moment ago, uh, just one aspect of this. Uh, but the important thing I want to mention about this book is that we, we wrote it in a certain way, Robert and I. Uh, we wrote it in a way that it would be evocative so that people would have an emotional connection to it. So when, when it comes to different books about the subject of techno-fascism or what we're facing, they can be dry, they can be too cold. And we wanted people to connect with the material. So we wrote it in a certain fashion, we call it show and tell. <clears throat> so every chapter follows the same format. The show is a story like you might read in a novel to emotionally connect you to the characters because you can imagine yourself being one of these characters or someone you know. And then the tell is the context, uh, the argument that we wish to make in the background supporting it. It's broken up into two parts. Part one is problem and part two is solution. Yeah. And I was going to reference one of the stories and that's what reminded me to ask you to just do an elevator pitch of it to describe the book. So perfectly done there. So there's the, the first story is called the smartphone shackle. And this tells of the story of a woman going through her kind of daily routine in the near future, which incorporates a ton of smart smartphone accessibility and 
smart home feature features and nearly every aspect of her routine from making breakfast in the morning to ordering an Uber to even entering her place of work has to be, you know, it's like facilitated through these different smartphone features. And to the character, this is all routine until something happens that results in her becoming restricted from those abilities. And this reminds me of a story uh, that came out of Baltimore, Maryland, where a guy had, and I'm not sure if you've heard this. And my first question to you is if you've heard about this story where a guy in Baltimore was accused of saying something racist through his smart doorbell to an Amazon delivery driver. And because of the simple allegation of racism, Amazon shut down all of his smart home features. And these uh, smart home features were connected to his Amazon Echo and which controlled the lighting in his house and all of this different stuff. And he was restricted from using all of this stuff for a week until Amazon said, oh, yeah, I guess we don't have any evidence that you did anything. Uh, I guess we'll switch it all back on. So, A, have you heard about this story? And B, if so, was it after you guys wrote uh, that that first that first uh, story in in the book? Oh, sure. I mean, this happened in June. So, yeah, uh, we wrote the book last year. Um, so, yes, I have heard about this story. And this is exactly what I've been talking about. Um, you know, if we begin to put all if we begin to abdicate our role uh, as as living beings on this planet and allow these computers to do our thinking for us, to control every aspect of our lives, we have to expect something like this is going to happen. And I'll give you an even more recent example of something like this. And this speaks to the power of techno-fascism. If you're following what happened to Russell Brand this past week, um, essentially they're doing something similar. They are shutting him off of all these platforms. In fact, the United Kingdom wanted Rumble to demonetize his account, not because he was convicted of anything. This is, again, an allegation, just like um, when it comes to the, the Amazon situation with that person's house. They weren't found guilty of anything. You know, the Constitution uh, uh, permits due process. We're not getting due process when it comes to techno-fascism. They have so much power and so much control, and we have wittingly or unwittingly given them this control. And I think a big point in the book that we're trying to make is you have to take your life back. Um, yes, don't, don't, uh, don't get chipped. Don't do those things. Don't allow your house to become a smart house. Don't um, choose to live in a smart city or a 15-minute city. In fact, I would encourage you to get a ha- get a car that it doesn't have 40 or 50 or even more IoT devices connecting to computers and the internet that they can suddenly shut down or do even worse. Um, many people believe that Michael Hastings, uh, who was a journalist who was co- uncovering many things about this kind of agenda, his car was actually driven off the road because they could access the computer. I don't know if that's true or not, but it still speaks to the same issue. We are giving way too much power to artificial intelligence in these computers, and we need to go go back uh, figuratively and um, literally back into the driver's seat because you can be locked out of your own home if you follow this, if you don't uh, play along the way they want you to. Yeah, Jim, have you heard of that story, the Baltimore one, with the guy getting locked out of a smart home? And again, I say it was after an allegation of racism. And I was just thinking, like, even even if it was, like, flat-out racism now, but I condone racism or whatever. But, like, <laughs> is that enough of a justification for them to be like, you know what, this way that you're living in your house, no, we're just going to shut it all off. Like, it just seems like an crazy amount of power in the hands of these corporations that that run all of these services that we pay for. Sure, sure is justification. They, you volunteered to have a powerful corporate entity 
that, as you should know by now, is very woke and does not, uh, you know, does not value freedom, your privacy. I mean, look, I, I have family members who have um, an Alexa in their house, and I've visited those family members. And I've heard Alexa just kind of pipe up <laughs> went non-prompted because of something somebody said in the, um, they accidentally, in fact, well, it's actually kind of funny because if there's a character on television whose name is Alexa, every time the television said that name, Alexa would pop up and ask, what do you want? You know, so pr obviously proof that Alexa, that these, this, these internet of things, this IOT, uh, Alexa is always on. And always listening. And in fact, your phone probably is too. And it might not be as obvious, but that's happening as well. But, you know, if you allow these corporate entities that kind of access to your life, um, I, I mean, obviously this should not have happened to this guy, but I, I don't have a whole lot of sympathy for him, actually. Well, wait, wait, um, wait, 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 wait. You wait. volunteered Donnie. for this sort of thing. You don't need Alexa in your house. You don't need to ask okay, Siri all right. Well, let me ask you this. questions. Wait, wait, um, hang on, but Chris. Of course, they would abuse their corporate power in this way because it is just one in a long line of corporate this entities from um, YouTube to Twitter before Elon Musk bought it to punish any quote unquote wrong think and anyone who just who who deviates from the the, the corporate narrative that they're all bought in on. Wait, 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 wait. So you don't have any sympathy for this guy. So I mean, what if I, what if right. Comcast is listening to this this uh, this podcast and they're like, I don't like what Jim Lakely said. I'm shutting off his internet. Are you going to say that that's your fault and you're not sympathetic to yourself because you rely on Comcast for your internet? I did not turn. In, I did not allow Comcast to um, into my home to monitor all of my activities. So yes, it's actually wrong that it, it's okay. It's wrong that it happened. Obviously, I don't agree with with him with them with Amazon basically turning off his entire house as punishment for being allegedly racist. But when you when you there are things you can do to stop that from happening. One is to not have that stuff in your house. You don't need Alexa. You don't. You don't need it. You know, like you don't need a chip in your head um, unless you're unless you have ALS to to scan the internet or to send emails. I mean, you don't need this stuff. And these corporations who are hell-bent on controlling our lives. They're all in, in league with the WEF. This is all part of, of the, you know, basically a global plan to reorder society. Big corporations are 100% on board. Um, you don't have to make it that easy for them. You can choose not to, to opt into these things that you frankly don't need. Chris, what do you have to say about this? Because I'm not ready to just kind of seed all technological advancements based on the possibility that they're going to do what Amazon did here. I feel like we have to almost fight back for this stuff, but what are your thoughts? Well, sorry, Donnie. I am uh, with Jim on this one. After last week, you know, I, I disagreed. Now I totally do agree. And here's why. Because people are putting convenience ahead of everything. And, um, you know, I've had a lot of discussions about this with my brother because he is very, very anti giving out his cell phone number or anything like that. You know, like we had to go to the gas station and I told him, oh, let's go to this one because, you know, we can get um, uh, rewards points. And he said, no, because I don't want to use, I don't want them to be able to track all my spending on my stuff. So it's like, I, I, I you know, was talking about that and because I use Google Maps and I use some of these things, but I don't have an Amazon Echo or anything like that in my home. And I, and I agreed with him and I said, you know, I am kind of violating one of my own principles because I want the um, the convenience of using Google Maps and having all my destinations saved and using Gmail and like, you know, and all those things. 
However, I know that I'm being tracked and I know that that's not even close to what's going on inside of people's homes that openly invite those devices that are literally tracking everything they do. So I'm with Jim. I think this no one no one uh, has a like a right to, you know, have Amazon products in their home. If Amazon says we don't want to sell you your products as a free market, you know, libertarian, I say fine. You know, there's there's no law that says Amazon must supply services to everyone in this country. So I'm 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 with Jim on this one. I think a lot of people just say, well, it's convenient and it's easy and it makes my life easier to navigate. But then they are unwilling to deal with the consequences that come with that. We are the most technologically like immersed generations that have ever existed in all of human, all of humanity, right? All of human history. You're that the cell phone that you have in your pocket right now, Chris is collecting so much more data on you. I agree. Than any data has ever been collected on your grandfather or any generation before that. So we are all choosing but, convenience. But there's a degree, over. but there's a degree to which you want to invite that into your life. So if you're saying I want my 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 home to almost be like run by a company that is tracking all my information, that is listening to everything I do, watching what I do, then that has consequences to it. And if there one was, of those, and if one of those a... consequences is, is that 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 woke company like Amazon says, well, if we don't like what you're saying inside of your home, then we're not going to offer our services to you. Then so be it. I don't want to. I don't want to get into the into you know the pigeonhole of defending Amazon, saying, "Well, Amazon should be forced to offer its services to you know everybody, even if you know they they don't want to." There was somebody who came on this show. I forgot who it was. Maybe it was Jim that was saying it. I don't know. But uh, what, what's that like super popular show that's got like Kevin Costner on it? it takes place in like the Yellowstone. Yellowstone, the prequel to that. Somebody was telling me a story about this. I never watched it. So this is coming third hand to you guys. But there was like the electric company was coming through. This is like in the 1800s or something. They're like, oh, we want to run electricity to your house or something like that. You just have to pay some little fee every month or something. You get electricity. And the guy was like, so you're telling me that the electric company, whoever's supplying gets to like control how I live and they can shut it off and, you know, uh, uh, charge me what they will and all that stuff. The guy's like, well, yeah. He's just like, no, bugger off, or something along those lines. <laughs> and like, that's what you guys are talking about right now. That's what it seems like to me. It's like back in that day where you'd be like, nope, no electricity. That's how they control you. <laughs> well, if, I could, if I could jump in on that, by the way, I've seen both of those shows and they're, they're very good. Um, there's there's a difference there. Uh, and, and I think what, what we're talking about is you're abdicating what it means to be a human being. You're being lazy. I mean, if you think about it, my, I have relatives that have Alexis too. And just go change the channel on your own. I mean, you can do these things. But I'll give you more. I'll give you a more recent example of this. Um, ChatGPT. So I know people right now who use ChatGPT from everything to creating their social media posts to literally writing the graduation card to their college graduate. I, I know a mom that wrote one for her son because she couldn't be bothered to write her own card for this person. So what does it say for society if we're not willing to? read books anymore, if we're not really willing to write even greeting card length uh, documents, not to mention articles or books. I, I feel for the people when they're talking about Yellowstone, because I think what happened in this country is that little by little, we've, we've become victims to comfort and leisure. 
and we've lost that pioneering spirit. We don't know how to do anything on our own. We can't hunt, we can't fish, we can't build. We can't do any of these things that our forebears could do. And I think this is a wake up call. Um, we, we're on a precipice. Do you want to go into their, their matrix? Do you want to have this cushy life like you mentioned with the matrix, the life where they can shut it off at any moment? Or do you want to take control of your, over your own life even though it might be more difficult, even though it's it's less convenient, I would choose the other life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to get back to this conversation a little bit uh, because I think it is kind of core to this whole concept. But I, I want to bring up another story in your book that uh, um, that I, I thought was like particularly interesting, especially in the realm of like government and and kind of authoritarian practices and all of that. So this is a chapter called "Running Dark," and it retells the story of Rosa Parks with a technological caveat, granting the government in the story the abilities that they essentially have now. And uh, this is related to the tell, in the tell section, you talk about how it's related to the Freedom Convoy in Canada and that they're financially throttled, the protest was financially throttled due to an emergency declaration by the World Economic Forum global young leader, young global leader, Minister uh, Justin Trudeau. So, the chapter made me think about uh, a thing that Justin and I kind of always talk about in regards to ESG and the sort of technology. And that is that this sort of technology allows the government to carry out some of the most authoritarian practices that you can come up with without needing them to use the force of jackboot stormtroopers or whatever. Like it's all digital. We'll just switch off their bank accounts and, you know, they'll just uh, not be able to protest anymore. So can you speak to this chapter? I thought it was a, a especially powerful one. Thank you. Um, yeah, absolutely. So like I mentioned before, we wrote this book a certain way so that people will be emotionally connected with this subject. And most of us are familiar <clears throat> with the story of Rosa Parks, that she was unwilling to give up her seat on the bus because back in those days, black people had to sit in the back of the bus and white people had to sit in the front. But the story that we're not, the second part of the story that we're not as familiar with uh, is what happened afterwards. And that was the, the leaders of this movement in Montgomery, Alabama, approached Rosa Parks and they asked her and others to be the face of this movement where they would divest, where they would boycott. They would stop going to white-owned restaurants that treated them subhuman. They would stop buying bus tickets where they were forced to the back of the bus. And in the story that we tell, it picks up that, that day after. And so Rosa Parks goes with her friends. They're also black and they go to a gas station. And when they try to pay for the gas, their cash disappears into thin air. And they notice this This is happening to the, the uh, black couple next to them as well. They're trying to also pay money at a black-owned gas station and the money disappears. When they go to the town and they see the same thing is happening, but it's even more chaotic and it's more scaled. And so all the restaurants there, the black, black patrons, when they try to pay their, their money to their, their, their black server, the money disappears. And then eventually even the money in the vaults of the black owned banks disappear. And what we were trying to convey, Robert and I, was the idea that the, the, um, the civil rights that we enjoy so much that came out of the 1960s, if the government uh, at the time or the powers to be within that government had the power to shut off people's access to money, which they were using as a political weapon, they would have done it. Of course, they couldn't because 
we didn't have electronic payment back then and so they could not do that but i want people to understand what is possible in right now and of course what they're trying to do in the future and that is central bank digital currencies and so the idea is not only do they want to debank you deplatform you but they want you to actually use their digital dollars and so what i always say to people is that these are programmable instruments of money if they don't want you to spend money on some, something because of your, your carbon footprint or if, if they don't want you to go to an event because it's being headlined by someone that they don't like, your money will no longer work. And so if we expect to continue to have this republic, we have to shut this down. We have to stop them from using these, these powers of technology. Yeah, I mean, Chris, you and I have had countless conversations about this type of thing and just the absolute control that kind of comes along with with uh, this technology and just ESG. And I, I've talked about ESG a billion times on this podcast, but like that program, that uh, system in itself would be impossible if it weren't for all the digitization of everything and the technology and whatever. But like authoritarian governments throughout history would just drool over the tools that our governments have now and their ability to kind of control society and all of that. So what are, what are your thoughts about this uh, in general and, you know, how escapable is that? I guess you could turn off your cell phone, but you can't really turn off the government. What do you think? Well, I think that's one of the big differences. So the Amazon example that we cited was a private company. You have choice. You don't have to do business with that private company. But in order to live in the United States, you have to be able to use money. So if the government were to say we're going to uh, roll out this CBDC and from now on, all transactions are going to be, you know, digitized and we're going to be able to track them and program that and all that stuff. I mean, that would that that would be, you know, so blatantly unconstitutional and, uh, you know, an infringement of, you know, Bill of Rights and just our civil liberties. I couldn't even imagine that the American people would go along with that in general. Um so I think that I think that that's just a very different example here. Um, I I hope I I you know I obviously we're well aware that the government wants to roll this out. You know they're they're doing a bunch of pilot programs and stuff, and we're seeing it already happen in uh, other countries. Um, I just hope that the American people reject it. Yeah, uh, I see a comment in here. This is from Christine saying, I still use a Rolodex. I think Jim still uses a card catalog when he goes and rents books from the library. So, Jim, I mean, how, how resistant can we be from these tools being used by the government? I mean, that that's like I said, that seems like a whole nother level of, of, of control that I don't even know, like what our founding fathers would say about some of the tools that are in the toolbox of the authoritarian elite. Yeah, well, uh, one of our viewers, female Casey Royals fan, uh, notes that um, if you want to go to a baseball game, you basically have to use a digital ticket. You know, I go, I go to a baseball, I go on a baseball trip with my old college buddies every year, and um, we buy the tickets in advance. And then, you know, one guy buys the tickets and sends them to everybody on their phone. They log in, they get it, so they have, we have the tickets weeks in advance. But they don't. I don't think they make paper tickets to um, major league baseball games anymore. So. Some of these things are unavoidable if you want to do certain things. I suppose if you don't, um, you know, you could just say, I don't want to go to any more baseball games the rest of my life. You know, I don't think that's necessarily a choice most people are going to make. I'm certainly not going to make it. But the problem here is not inherently the, the digital. Obviously, it's not the digital technology that is the problem. And you could even argue it's not even the fact that they collect data on you to then monetize and sell to other places, which is why we get so much spam. Um, both now it's increasingly spam on our phones. I'm, I get spam texts all the time. 
Now I probably get three or four a day. It probably end up being 15 a day in a few months, especially as an electric keeps coming up. The, um, you know, so that's a trade-off that people have made and people understand it. Um, in fact, that's the entire business model of Facebook, at least it was. And uh, Europe's making that increasingly uh, more difficult for them to actually monetize. The problem comes in when uh, these corporations in league with government, but often on their own, decide to act in fascistic manners in that they figure we have this information, we have this power. It would be irresponsible for us to not use it to make a better world. It would be irresponsible for Amazon not to punish a racist by turning off uh, his ability to control his house that he voluntarily gave them. Of course, he didn't voluntarily give Amazon that kind of power in the technology in his home with the understanding that on a whim that a human being at, um, at Amazon or any other technology company could just decide um, on their own that this person needs to be punished for the betterment of society. Um, that is a step obviously way too far. And, you know, if there, if there needs to be, I mean, maybe there needs to be legislation, there needs to be something, but obviously it can start with your own, with your own life in, in trying to de-digitize as much as possible so that you don't run into these sorts of problems because of the power that these corporations can have over your life in ways that are very, very significant. I mean, this is why a lot of people don't have so-called smart thermostats in their homes. Um, there are voluntarily there are voluntary programs in which you can work with your electric company to have a smart meter on your home that allows them, frankly, the ability to regulate and moderate how much electricity or power um, or maybe gas that you would use. Um, I'm never going to volunteer for something like that. Um, I think if you have one of those old analog uh, thermostats, you might want to keep it, uh, even if you replaced it with one of the new digital ones, you might want to keep it handy and learn how to re uh, rehook it in because it could come to that point where, you know, uh, instead of just having rolling brownouts that companies just decide this person, this person, this person, maybe based on, on how your district may have voted in the last election, will have their power turned off while everybody else is, is, uh, is able to keep their power. So, I mean, I think that's inevitable. That's where these things are going. And so you have to make smart choices. I mean, to some people, that might seem like a crazy uh, assertion that that could happen, but it literally already happened in Colorado. Kind of smart, smart meters, uh, you know, people that signed up for this program to, to shave off a percentage of their like electricity bill or something like that energy bill. Uh, they signed on to this thing that basically granted the energy company uh, the ability to turn their dial down or up, depending on what would be an energy saving things in ter uh, in cases of like extreme heat or power shortages or anything like that. So it's literally already happening. <laughs> but uh... I think, but Danny, I think right now the, you know, everyone's making individual trade-offs uh, whether, you know, they want to, you know, have more convenience and then know that, okay, well, I'm going to take that convenience in return for these companies having, you know, my data and be able to track me and all that kind of stuff. I think that we haven't gotten to the point where the pain, you know, is greater than the pleasure here. But once we do reach that point, I think that people are then going to uh, have second thoughts about this kind of stuff. So like you just said, like if the if, if you know, the, the thermostats are then, you know, uh, controlled, I think that people would say, wait a second, this is a step too far. So right now, I think that the pain does not override the, the pleasure that they receive from these, you know, uh, conveniences and luxuries that they are willing to, yeah, I, that they are voluntarily engaging in right now. I'd be very, very interested to know what percentage of the people that are affected by that story in Colorado with the 
energy company fiddling with their thermostat said like opt me out of this i don't want to be in this anymore <laughs> like i wonder what the percentage because if it's if it's like 50 percent or more then chris i think that holds water and it gives me hope if it's like 10 percent or less i don't know i think people are going to stick with the cost savings and the convenience of it uh michael i've got a few more questions for you specifically about the book but uh, i want to kind of piecemeal them out throughout the rest of the episode uh, and i want to kind of get your take on a couple of these other stories that i have here so one of them and this is just kind of came across in the past couple of weeks there's a story from the new york times and it is titled irs deploys artificial intelligence to catch tax evasion so reading from the New York Times article, it says the Internal Revenue Service has started using artificial intelligence to investigate tax evasion of multi-billion dollar partnerships as it looks for ways to better uh, uh, better policy hedge funds. I think that was a typo on my part. Private better, equity better groups, police. better police hedge funds, private equity groups, real estate investors, and large law firms. IRS Commissioner Daniel Werfel explains that artificial intelligence is helping the IRS identify patterns and trends, giving the agency greater confidence that it can find where larger partnerships are shielding income that is leading to kinds of major audits that the IRS might not have previously tackled. So the article further states that the agency would be opening tax examinations into 75 of the nation's largest partnerships by the end of the month. So Michael, I mean, come on. We don't want uh, hedge funds to get away with tax evasion. This use of the artificial intelligence by the IRS should be applauded by all, should it not? 100%, right? <laughs> um, except for the fact that I don't think they're going after the rich people. Um, they're, <laughs> right. They say they're going to do that. But let's remember what the ability of AI is. I mean, what it really excels at doing is taking a lot of unstructured or structured data stuff that no, no normal human being or even a team of human beings could ever go through at any time and then to find patterns. And so you let it loose now after you gave all, after the, the Biden administration gave billions and billions of dollars to the IRS to revamp its uh, ability to do these things. And so it's natural that they would do something like this. Of course, I think um, in the same way we've been talking about with all of these articles or um media hits, they will present it a certain way. So going back to Elon Musk for just a moment, there's a reason why he talks about using Neuralink for people that have disabilities or diseases, right? We begin with the positive use case. So when the New York Times is framing it, they're going to say they're going after these greedy investors and these hedge funds. Of course they are, but we know the truth, what they're really doing with this. And so this is yet another tool in which we it can be weaponized against the people. It's not hard to imagine that in the same way they went after Matt Taibbi, who's famous for the Twitter files, you know, the IRS showed up his, at his door um, for questioning what was going on. Again, going back to the collusion between big tech and big government for his efforts to disclose what was going on, how the US government was putting pressure on social media companies um, for a certain narrative, the IRS, um, went after him. And so I think we're going to see more and more of this as AI gets stronger and, and better able to reveal these kind of patterns. Yeah, Jim, I mean, 
I feel like this is the ultimate like camel's nose under the tent type of scenario here where it's, oh, no, we're just going to use this technology to go after billionaire hedge funds. And surely we'd never use this technology to audit every single person or business out there to ensure that every penny that's owed to the government is paid in full. No, no, no. It's just the billionaires we're going after. And remember like the that uh, that time that that distant past time of like six months ago where we were concerned about how the passing of the Inflation Reduction Act and how it was like going to potentially hire on like 80,000 new IRS agents in those good old days where we were worried about humans. Well, now in the, you know, coming potential dark future, artificial intelligence could do the detailed job of millions of IRS agents in a fraction of the time. They can sift through mountains of financial and tax data in minutes. What do you, what do you think about this story? Well, yeah. I mean, the first thing I thought of is like, you know, hey, didn't we just hire 87,000 new IRS agents? Why the hell do we need to have them using AI to figure out? Uh, because know. AI can't use a gun yet. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, yeah, very soon. Yeah, they need uh, door knockers, right? Yeah, we'll get AI that is going to work with the neural chip in a IRS agent's brain to get him to pull out his weapon and uh, raid your home, I suppose. I don't know. But uh, look, the, the, the idea that you need AI... To again, as as Michael pointed out, what it's really good at is is uh, finding patterns in huge amounts of data and information. Uh, the The problem here is that the IRS, as as noted on this podcast, and everyone listening here knows, tends to be weaponized against people and organizations that the regime in power considers a threat. Uh, which is why Matt Taibbi had his house uh, <laughs> knock on the door from the IRS the morning before he was to testify uh, in front of Congress. Um, wow, just oh wow, that's just a coincidence. Mm -hmm. And it will be just a coincidence that artificial intelligence will start um, finding, you know, actually, you could have a wonderful dual purpose. This is how wonderful AI will work if you are interested in abusing the power of government to punish your political enemies. You can use AI to uh, to scour channels like YouTube and find problematic podcasts like this, get the names of those people, look on all of their social media posts. So you can have AI scour Twitter and Facebook to find and to identify enemies of the regime. And then you can have AI go through all of their, um, any and all financial information that you might be able to find online, whether it's um, you know what, how much stuff they're buying on Amazon or uh, charitable donations uh, in places like GoFundMe and things like that. And then of course, go through all of their tax data. And it's it's already, it's the ability of bureaucrats with ill intent to unleash the borrowed power of the government on political enemies is already out of hand. If you, if you add AI's ability to target enemies of the government um, or perceived enemies of the government, you are going to turn that up by a thousand percent. And if you are interested in always winning elections, if you're interested in always retaining power, which is supposed to be temporary, even in the hands of bureaucrats, um, the rise of technology and artificial intelligence, the things that uh, Michael writes in his book, is it's a dream come true. And it's a nightmare for ordinary Americans. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's absolutely crazy. Chris, do you have any comments on this? Yeah, story? yeah. So Merrick Garland, you know, was testifying in front of Congress yesterday, and they were asking about the weaponization of the DOJ. You know, the the going after Catholic parents and all that kind of stuff. Could you imagine if they had this tool where they they could use that to really like pinpoint 
who they want to go after because right now it's just a big kind of clunky affair and they're trying to say well we think these people are involved or even the j6 thing they had to go through all those hours of video they had to try to you know use uh other data points from, you know, banks and such to, to, to determine who was where and when. But if they did have a simple AA pro, uh, process, uh, procedure that could sift through these, you know, mountains of data in, in seconds, geez, they could really, you know, uh, pinpoint who their enemies are and they could go after them with such precision. And that is very, very scary because, you know, in, in, in the past, whether it's Stalin, whether it's Hitler, whether it's any authoritarian regime, you know, the Castros in Cuba, everything was had, you know, was was, you know, done in a way that was not uh, efficient. So this just adds a whole new uh, sense of efficiency to that process. And, you know, when you combine efficiency with uh, repression, that's a very bad combination. Yeah. And it's like AI is one thing when it's like some objective, it's just some objective, just, you know, whatever. We're just taking all the data and spit out the results, right? And you put two plus two into a calculator, hit enter, and it spits out four, you know, no bias, just completely objective. It's like, that's one thing. And we could have all sorts of conversations about that. And, you know, if you had like a purely objective artificial intelligence, like, would you trust it coming up with a policy solution for determining the absolute correct minimum wage or something like that. It takes all the data in there. You press go and it says the minimum wage should be $12 or something like that, right? That's one thing. But there's a lot of concerns out there about a bias uh, that's inherent in artificial intelligence. And that's putting aside chat GPT and all of that stuff, but like programming a bias into artificial intelligence programs. So I have another article here. That talks about the, the G20, which I plan on talking a little bit more about in the Davos Watch segment at the end of this episode. They just formally declared that they want an international regulatory framework for artificial intelligence. And if you go and read their official declaration from this month on this topic of artificial intelligence, they talk very specifically about trying to embed into AI a uh, SDGs or Sustainable Development Goals. Embedded it programmed into the artificial intelligence. So now when, you know, this UN sanctioned AI is trying to come up with solutions for any public policy ills or anything like that, it'll be drawing from these bedrock SDG and, and ESG goals like that. That's the world that we are trending towards. But uh, I mean, Michael, that that's, that's like a whole new threat on top of artificial intelligence being in control of some of these things is an inherently biased one that are controlling all these things. What are your thoughts on this story? Well, I'm, I'm going to zoom out for just a moment. Um, I happen to be reading a book about the founding fathers. And if you just imagine for a moment, if the founding fathers were to come back to life today and, and just to hear this conversation so far, how far have we strayed from their vision? I mean, it's, it's, it's abominable. It's, it's incredible how far we've gone away from that. I mean, the government was supposed to, be protecting our rights. It was supposed to be. It was supposed to enable us and empower us to to have lives of, of liberty and freedom. And instead, it's running our lives. And now, even worse, it's not just the U.S. government that we have to worry about. It's not just big tech. But now we have a, a collusion of different governments, all under the umbrella of the United Nations. And to go back to what you're you're saying there with the sustainable development goals, I would like to just pause here for a moment and just think how smart these guys are for just a moment here. Not only are they smart enough to create the technology, we'll give them that, 
they're really smart at packaging it, right? Just think about that phrase, sustainable development goals. Right. You know, these terms that they're using, it's on purpose, right? They're using words that anyone would think in their right mind, like like the CARES Act and the Patriot Act. I mean, who's who's against patriotism? Who's against caring for your fellow neighbor? It's so smart the way that they put this together. Let's take a moment and, and just remember that for, for a second here. Um, I think ultimately what we got here is the, the noose is tightening, right? Wherever you go, um, they are consolidating power. We're, we're talking about people that already had a lot of money. But we know under in, in 2020, with uh, entities like BlackRock, where they shifted all of this money to themselves, they printed all this money out of thin air. They were already incredibly powerful. Now you combine all of this wealth that they got after 2008, 2000, I mean, 2020, and now they're consolidating even further. So now they're using artificial intelligence that most people had no say in. Um, they had no consideration given to their thoughts, their opinions on the way that we're using it. But instead, the, uh, the movers and shakers of the universe are now creating these tools to embed in AI, as you mentioned, to, to incorporate and to go after the sustainable development goals. And all, what, it, what it leads me to, to think about as we say this is, why are we here on this earth? You know, what is our purpose in this life? If you were to ask the globalists, uh, if you were to ask George W. Bush after the 9-11 attacks, you'd say the most important thing that you can do is be a consumer, is to buy more crap, right? And so what I would say is if, if we can even zero out just even further and say, why are we talking about this? Why does this matter? Well, I think it, it matters to the purpose of your own life. I do not believe that we are put here to buy more needless stuff. I think we are put here to test our souls and to grow our souls and to grow who we are as people and to develop our character. And when we have these many threats coming all at the same time, by the way, we haven't even touched on many other threats. There's so many other things that are going on in the world right now that we don't have time to address in this conversation. I think more and more it, it demonstrates the need for us to rise to the occasion and just say no to this stuff. Um, for too long in America, we've had it for had it way too good, and we've slept walk through the last fifty to hundred years. Going back to what you mentioned about Yellowstone, um, we need to get go back to the skills that we once had. We need to go back to developing our communities, to finding the commonalities that we have between each other instead of the differences, and to re recognize that our enemy is not our neighbor. It is the people um, and the organizations that are creating this prison that they want us to live in for the rest of our lives and, and worse, our children and their children. Johnny, can I just, can I just uh, ex extend on that? Because I think Michael just made some really, really great points. Um, I also think that, you know, part of the human experience is about uh, building, you know, relationships with people, like foundational relationships, close relationships. And what a lot of this, you know, technology has done in the past 20 years, because I've grown up in it and I've experienced it, is it's pulled us apart. And, you know, whether it's social media and people living in their own, you know, digital world or whether it's AI, just, you know, making decisions and just telling you basically like, how do you live your life? I agree with Michael on this. You know, I think for so many Americans, they've lost purpose. And yeah, this technology makes our life easier and does, you know, make it more convenient, makes it easier to get from point A to point B, but it also has a dehumanizing effect on it, on us as mm -hmm. well. And I think that the more people just go dive into this stuff neck deep and don't think about, you know, that, I think it's just, you know, it, it's it's making our our country and our society, um, you know, just just so so much like less uh, you know, community oriented and, and, and people oriented. 
And it's all just, you know, it, and it's just about people just living for themselves. And hey, that hey, is, hey. that is, you know, a recipe for disaster. Nobody knows me better than my artificial intelligence friend on Snapchat. So how <laughs> dare you say that? No, uh, Alexa knows you better. Alexa knows you better than <laughs> that's that. True. So does you, whatever if you have a phone. No, I just, just, just to kind of wrap it up. I mean, uh, this entire discussion and especially specific parts of it made me think of the great Michael Crichton and his great book, and then the movie. Jurassic Park, where um, Dr. Ian Malcolm, in having a discussion with, uh, you know, with everybody around the, the table when they were eating, says, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. I mean, that's the, the problem here. And again, I guess to, to bring it back to Michael's invocation of the founding fathers, um, it was John Adams who said that uh, only... The, the system of government and society they were setting up was only going to work if we had a moral society. And we have going, going to the, to the, you know, Amazon accusing somebody of racism and shutting everything off. I mean, yes, the technology allows people to do that. Um, but there is no, there seems to be no pause to say, should I do something like that? You know, it's, it's, and the answer obviously is no. And, you know, should these technologies as they are advancing so quickly, be used for basically abusive purposes. And an immoral society or a moral person in control of that technology would say the answer is no. Just because I can do these things, um, I shouldn't do them because there's a larger, there's, there are lar much larger issues here at, at play, such as privacy, um, such as you know, otherizing people and canceling them and having the power to do that um, doesn't mean you should be able to do that or you shouldn't do that. And there, there doesn't seem to be any, um, there, there seems to be so few conversations about the could and should do um, on when it comes to this technology. And it's just as applicable 30 years ago when uh, Jurassic Park came out and even earlier than that when Michael Crichton wrote the book. Because it wasn't a book about dinosaurs. It was a book about technology and the, the moral questions that arise as technology advances. It's just as relevant uh, now as it was 30 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Michael, I have another question for you uh, about the book, but I'm going to save it till after I do the newest episode of Davos Watch. So if we have the bumper music ready, let's go ahead and hit that. All right, welcome to episode five of Davos Watch, where we keep an eye on the global elites from Davos to the UN and all the other advocates of global fascism and totalitarian technocracy. So this week, our story comes to my attention from the G20's released policy recommendations document they released after the summit wrapped. The G20, as I explained in the previous episode of Davos Watch, is an international forum for economic cooperation and policy coordination composed of the world's major economies. They meet annually to coordinate and discuss issues relating to financial stability, trade issues, climate change, or things that are generally global in scope. Agreements are struck, goals are often set, and policy recommendations are published. And this year, the policy recommendations were particularly interesting because they called for a digital ID system as well as a digital financial system that would both help facilitate a move towards a central bank-backed digital currency. The proposal 
for the digital ID is filled with a ton of the standard stated benefits that go along with people that support this sort of thing. And CBDCs, we're talking about cost savings for citizens, reducing fraud, enhancing individual verification, and also proposed as a means to improve regulatory compliance or streamline how governments monitor and report complex transactions. And it also will help us prepare for the future and our ability to conform to new cybersecurity practices in the new digital economy. And beyond these things, we don't have to get uh, we don't get much further insight into why these things are really being proposed. For that, we have to follow a, a, a little bit of a, a trail of breadcrumbs, you might say. So back in 2018, a similar plan for a digital ID was proposed by the Canadian Bankers Association in a paper titled Canada's Digital ID Future, a Federated Approach. In this paper, the authors lay out how an uh, ideal digital ID system would be federated, meaning a person's electronic identity and attributes are stored across distinct but linked identity management systems. So you might have identification as it pertains to your state ID or your driver's license or healthcare services or taxes or financial systems. Under a federated system, you would have one ID that links together all of this information. Now, if you are as skeptical about all of these machinations of the political elite and all of that as I am, you would hear this and immediately start worrying about the centralization of information and data, enhanced ability for the governments to better track your movements and actions, and maybe most importantly, the potential foundation that this would create that might serve as a comprehensive way to maybe score your social credit? I don't know. The paper by the Canadian Bankers Association came out just two years after the release of a similar paper produced by the World Economic Forum titled A Blueprint for Digital Identity. This paper is much longer and much more comprehensive. And it takes into account uh, input from a whole host of great reset and ESG supporters, including MasterCard and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and JP Morgan Chase and Morgan Stanley. And uh, Andy, if you have that up on the screen, page 12, you can actually see a nice cross section of all the different people that uh, you know had input into this World Economic Forum report. It's basically every bank and every credit that that's the page right there scroll up a little bit there and you could just see all the people that have uh, input into the potential digital id system that we might all once have to operate under so this paper goes through the details of creating a digital id system while also pointing out the potential pitfalls one of those pitfalls being stakeholder rejection it says users may not adopt the system due to poor design or distrust in the system's purpose or structure. Yeah, that stakeholder distrust is really getting in the way of some of these plans by the World Economic Forum. And an example of this is shown with an article headline showing a growing opposition to China, uh, sorry, India's uh, digital ID system because of fears of surveillance. I, I'm there with you, everybody that has that growing fear. And perhaps this paper should have expanded on that section a bit because the comments made during the recent G20 summit about digital ID surely would leave a sour taste in many people's mouths. The European Union commissioner 
president, sorry, Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, who is not the bad person from The Little Mermaid, promoted the idea of a digital ID by comparing it to the COVID vaccine passport. Of course, what's going to help resonate with your average day person than bringing up that terrible nightmare from a few years ago? The quote from the commissioner says, Many of you are familiar with the COVID-19 digital certificate. The EU developed it for itself. The model was so functional and so trusted that 51 countries on four continents adopted it for free. And this quote was revealing, uh, revealed two things to me when I first read it. One is just how out of touch these people are. Like, at least to the interests of your everyday American, who is very against this idea of a COVID passport. But two, I think it also kind of shows the uniformity that is expected from a plan like this. And if the goal is to have an ID system that conforms and is inoperable to a wide range of countries, you're going to need a lot of major coordination between all of the countries, potentially global in scope when it comes to rolling out a digital ID. And before you dismiss any of this as just the lofty goals of the global elites, just remember that these ambitious plans and global organizations are incredibly well-connected and incredibly influential. And oftentimes, the things that they say and do go largely ignored, and they go ignored at our own peril. And that is why I started Davos Watch, where every week I intend to shine a light on some element of the global elites, and I hope you stay tuned so that you can stay informed. So, Chris, we were talking about this. Thank you. thank you. Thank you. Chris, we were talking about this digital ID uh, concept coming out of G20. What, what, are your, uh, what are your thoughts on this? You're going to be an early adopter? No, I don't think so. Not even in the least bit. Um, well, first of all, I, I'm, I'm a little uh, skeptical that it would actually work, considering I remember back when uh, Obamacare was, was rolled out and they tried to launch a website that you could go and sign up for, and it took months and it was just a complete nutter train wreck so if they can't even make a a portal for you to sign up for three different healthcare plans i find it pretty you know uh i don't think it's going to be very uh functional for them to develop a giant database that has everyone's you know personal info in one centralized he's location. a lion dog-faced pony soldier <laughs> although, right. although, although I do think that this is something that they would absolutely love to do because it would give them so much more control and so much more uh, ability to track. You know, right now we've got a bunch of different databases, most are at the state level, the driver's licenses and that kind of thing. But there really is no just one central hub that, you know, you can go and, and, and really track everyone all at once. If everyone was forced to uh, possess a digital ID, that would just be a total game changer and it would be a game changer much, you know, for the worse. Yeah. I mean, Michael, this seems when I read it, it seems like this is the foundation for a CBDC type system. I mean, you, you if you're going to be tracking the actions of, of, uh, you know, people and, and all of these things that we're talking about, the data collection on it is inherent, you know, whether it's Netflix, just trying to figure out what type of shows that you like or Google figuring out kind of where you, where you like to go in your routines when it comes to the music you listen to. And sometimes it pops up like, oh, you're probably driving from home. You want to listen to some music, stuff like that. But it's all decentralized. All that data is owned by separate entities. And I just yes. look at this and it's just like, yeah, this like if you were trying to come up with like a Dr. Evil idea of just like having uh, and uh, collecting all the data on everybody and having it in one centralized location, this is what you would do. Are your thoughts kind of in line with me or no? 
A hundred percent. That's why we made it um, one of the last chapters of the book. Uh, essentially, we called it, uh, you know, everything 9-11, basically. It was uh, Cyber 11, Cyber 911, excuse me. Total 911. I know your book better than you. Was it Total 911? <laughs> okay, well, originally, that's the way I called it, Cyber 911. <laughs> anyway, um, but what I want to say, <laughs> thank you. I'm glad that you read it that closely, uh, is it goes back to something that Jim mentioned a moment ago. Um, yes, if they, this is their dream come true, of, of course, more data, more stuff for them to analyze, more ways to track you, all of that stuff. I won't disagree with that. But let's go back how to, to how to deal with this problem. And I think it does go back to what Jim was mentioning. It goes back to our founding fathers. The way that you keep a republic is based on the people and their integrity and their morals. And the, it's no accident that they are rolling out the stuff at the same time that society has collapsed in a lot of ways. There's this weird YouTube video I found yesterday, and it will show people, I don't know how they did this, but um, you can watch people grocery shopping in 1991. Mm. You can watch them interacting at a McDonald's in the early 80s. I don't know if you've seen this. I just happened to see it yesterday. And what I was, I, I, I found myself mesmerized by it and just thinking how weird it is. It's, it's, it's a, a different way of time travel. You get to kind of observe it um, as this this other party, and you get to see how people used to behave. Uh, spoiler alert: we, we've fallen very far from the mark, um, and this is all on purpose, right? So the we've got many agendas competing at once. One that we haven't talked about is education, and so whether it's John Dewey and, and the New School or the progressives, they spent a long time, more than a hundred years not only dumbing us down, but removing God and removing our sense of community from schools. And so now, nowadays, um, our, our students are indoctrinated. They're indoctrinated to think a certain way. I think for too long, we focused um, exclusively on the issue of college, and that's important too, in terms of how colleges indoctrinate um, our young people especially. But it goes back to elementary school as well. We're spending, I think it's average... 16,000 hours between kindergarten to uh, to college, uh, before you go to college there, you're spending all this time there and you're being indoctrinated. Well, you're not learning anything uh, about God's love for you, about the ways that we're connected, about your divine purpose. Instead, you're made to believe that you're some sort of widget. And it's natural for some sort of widget to be analyzed, to be inspected, to be nudged, for their behavior to be uh, changed. If you subscribe to these views if you fall for for the propaganda and for the ways in which they are wholesale leading you down a path then that will be our reality but if we want to turn this around we have to change our culture in this country we have to change it around the world but because america exports our culture to all of the other countries in the world and because america is founded upon an ideal and in an idea we need to go back to that idea and we need to especially spend the time to teach, there you, are, there you are finding that video. We need to go back and we need to teach our young people to have the values they contributed and built this country and sustained it for 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 at least 100 or 50 years or so before they really began wrecking it. And so what I mean by that is we spend so much time worrying about the next thing, the next technological development, the next way that they're going to spy on us, the next way that they're going to steal our information. Okay, that's important. But I think we should spend more time on fixing ourselves culturally, creating a nation of autodidacts. And what I mean by that is someone that does their own research, 
creating a nation of people that is bound by integrity, that we wouldn't do these things to each other if given the opportunity, because ultimately it comes down to our choices. We have a choice in this life and we can choose not to adhere to their system. We can choose to raise our children differently and say no to their agenda. You know, Donnie, can I just make one one quick comment on that? A couple of uh, weeks ago, my brother and I, we went and played golf at a uh, golf course almost in Iowa. And, you know, afterwards, you know, we went and had some dinner in the town. And uh, one of the things that struck me so much was how polite everyone was, how much everyone was actually just willing to talk and how much more personal everyone at the entire place was as opposed to, you know, in the suburbs of Chicago and going to downtown Chicago where no one looks at you in the face. Everyone is just, you know, like uh, everyone almost looks at you as transactional. And it's just such a different uh, way of life. And I think to some degree that is because in places like, you know, this town that I went to, uh, it was much less technology orientated. And it seemed like it was just much more simple, down to earth people. And, you know, they had much more respect for one another. Uh, it was just, it was such a different atmosphere. And I mean, I just, you know, you know, when Michael talks about, you know, grocery shopping, you know, 30 years ago, I mean, I can just even tell you like going to the grocery store now, it's everyone's on their phones. Everyone's just looking out for me, me, me. Sometimes when I stand in the self-checkout line and if someone's only got, an, uh, an, you know, one or two items, sure, go ahead. You know, that just doesn't exist anymore. And it's just, I, I do wonder if technology has some uh, part, some role in that. And that we're all just so obsessed with keeping up and, you know, with the next, like Michael said, the next thing that we've forgotten our humanity. Oh, and yeah. That, I is, COVID, that is a I think, very sad state of affairs. I think COVID really kind of drove a nail into that uh, idea, too, where now we're all yes. conditioned to look at everybody as a potential threat that we couldn't even become six feet close to, you know, without the fear of getting some terminal illness or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, Michael's 100% right. I want to thank him again for being on the show. It was fantastic having you uh, contribute and definitely got and check out his book. But, you know, he's he's right. I mean, it's, it's the human connection. It's the sense of community. And uh, you're right, too, Donnie. The I think COVID drove the last, it was, you know, really drove home the idea that um, or convinced people that we don't need each other. We do need each other um, and we need to trust each other. And um, you need to build that trust with personal relationships. I mean, the only electronic device in that video of somebody shopping in a grocery store in 1981 was a calculator. So that the because she probably showed up to the grocery store with a wad of cash and she couldn't spend any more than what she had in her pocket because they didn't have very easily to pay with a, um, with a credit card back then. Although you could write a check. Um, still see very old ladies writing checks at the grocery store these days. Very rare, but I've seen it. I've seen it once a year or so. But it's that it's that personal connection, and technology wants to separate us. COVID separated us. Um, you know, like Don or Chris plays golf with his brother, and you get into a foursome, and it's just you guys. Um, hopefully, when you're golfing, you put your phone, turn it off, and put it in your bag, and never look at it. You know, Absolutely. I play a lot of tennis. You can't have a phone on in one hand and a tennis racket in the other, and so you spend you know, and ninety minutes to two hours just doing something physical and real with another human being. Um, and if we Continue to let technology from either a chip in your head to staring at your phone instead of talking to somebody in a restaurant, um, you're falling into a very, uh, I think is frankly a dangerous trap. So uh, applause and, and, to Michael also, for pointing that out. 
And it also leads to less empathy because you can't relate to people because you're relating almost to a device that doesn't, you know, have a personality, doesn't have experiences. You know, when you go and interact with people, you learn about them, you know, you, you become a better person. So I think everything that Michael said about, you know, us losing purpose and becoming too dependent on technology and, you know, using it, you know, for our convenience and not, you know, overcoming that uh, is a very big problem. And I hope that, you know, this next generation um, understands that and hopefully, you know, the tide turns. And, and those comments were from employee number 1402. So the last thing that I, the last thing I want to say, Michael, about your book is that in your dedication, just in the first couple of pages, you're dedicated. Uh, you dedicate the book to Teddy and Sammy and all the other future Teddies and Sammies. And by some crazy cosmic coincidence, my colleague Justin's first child's name is Teddy, and my first child's name is Sammy. So the dedication really drove home this reality of the topics in a way that I don't think I've even fully internalized before. You know, like the the reality of all of this stuff. This isn't just stuff that we talk about on the podcast. This is this is reality. So I just want to thank you for the work that you've done on this book and help raise the awareness of these very important issues. Thank you. And thank you for having me here today. Great yeah. talk. So where can people go? The, the book again, Neuromind, Triumphing Over Technological Tyranny. Where can people go if they're interested in purchasing this book? Well, you can go to a wonderful place called Amazon. It's contributing to all the things we're talking about. Um, they may turn off your lights if you buy it from them, but, you know. It's... Yeah, well, I'll Walk out awesome. to a physical bookstore and get it, you know, and pay cash. There you go. Actually, you know what? Uh, we're in 60 Hudson News bookstores across the nation, so... If you um, if you're in an airport and it happens to be a, happens to have a Hudson News, buy it from them, or I'll be on the highway selling them. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> avoid Amazon, but I think uh, go there, please. Um, if you want to check me out, um, you can go to my website, MichaelAshleyPublishing.com. But feel free to um, also pick up the book, please. All right, fantastic, and that's going to do it for this week's episode of the In the Tank podcast. I want to thank everybody for tuning in for this week's episode. Tune in every week for a new episode. If you are an audio only listener that is catching the show on a Friday or later, feel free to write us a review on iTunes. It'd be greatly appreciated. Or you can join us live where we are live streaming on YouTube and Rumble and Facebook and Twitter every Thursday at noon central time. You can also follow us on Twitter at In the Tank Pod or send us your comments or suggestions for the show by emailing us at In the Tank Podcast at gmail.com. Jim Lakely, where can the fine people find you? At Jay Lakely on Twitter, at Heartland Inst on Twitter, and always visit heartland.org. Fantastic. Chris Talgo, what do you have to pitch today? Um, heartland.org please go check out the opinion section we got a bunch of new uh, great stories and op-eds up there including one by uh, Heartland President James Taylor about New England hurricanes and how they are not increasing Fantastic. I highly recommend it and Michael Ashley thank you once again for joining us I think it was a wonderful episode thank you all alright thank you all for tuning in we will talk to you next week